Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from... 3CR Studios in Melbourne on 855am and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website, that's www.3cr.org.au and Freedom of Species podcast website, that's www.freedomofspecies.org and all previous podcasts are available via iTunes. So g'day, my name's Adam and I just wanted to start the show with a song of hope. The song's called The Day We Saved the World by Sarah Sleen um, from the album Land and Sea. Here we go. This place was in horrible shape No one wanted to see That's when hope rose up 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. And that was Sarah Sleen with The Day We Saved the World. And here at Freedom of Species, animals are very important to us. Obviously, we're all about animals. And I suspect it's true for most of the listeners out there as well, that animals are important to you as well. You may even have an animal companion with you right now, sitting on the couch listening to the radio. Maybe you do that. Maybe your dog's on your lap. Maybe your cat's sitting behind you, meowing, asking for some extra food. Um, Well, have you ever thought about what you would do for the animals in your care during an emergency? You might be thinking, well, of course, I'll save them. I'll just pick them up and we'll go and we'll all be safe and we'll all be fine. But have you really thought about what it takes to care for an animal in an emergency? How you're going to collect them if they're already scared and worried running around? Maybe they've run off um, because they can sense something coming. And what does it actually mean to flee your home or 
leave in an emergency situation, where will you go? Who will take your four horses? What are you going to do? Well, I recently spoke to someone doing research into this very idea, how we need to manage the protection of animals during times of emergency. So here's the interview. Have a listen. My name is Mel Taylor. I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University in the Department of Psychology and uh, I'm a lead researcher with the Bushfire and Natural Hazards CRC, um, which is a research collaboration between academia and um, emergency services. And so I've been working for the last three years on a project which we called Managing Animals in Disasters. And uh, I've just spent the last three years telling people that actually it's really about people uh, and about people's uh, response in, in the context of their animals in disasters. Yeah, great. And so how did you get involved in this work? So you're working with the Bushfire CRC. What was it that drew you to the animal aspect and looking looking after animals in emergencies? Okay, it was it was a bit convoluted. So I started off um, working in in health and health behaviour, and um, we had I was working with pandemic planning, and we had an outbreak of equine influenza, and that resulted in people self quarantining. And I had a conversation with a colleague, and long story short, it ended up that um, we could learn something about what was happening with equine influenza from the point of view of how it was making people feel and respond, because people were um, in, in New South Wales, at least where I am, were um, not able to move their horses around, and you know, were getting quite upset and sad about the lack of social contact. And and so when I sort of started marrying that up with the work I'd been doing on the psychosocial impacts of disasters, which was more sort of mental health related, um, it just brought the two the two worlds together. So, um, yeah, having an interest and in, in a love of animals myself, um, it just seemed like a, a perfect combination. Yeah, great. That's that's um, that is an interesting way to get into it, isn't it? So yeah. there's some there's some um, relationships there between emergencies and and the way that um, people are feeling with equine influenza and being um, quarantined is that is that what was happening yeah yeah absolutely i mean think you know with, with the with the animal disease <clears throat> excuse me and with also you know emergency events um you know the issues are very similar people are concerned about um about the welfare of their their animals and uh want to look after them and um perhaps not uh, you know not that prepared or you know have got a lot of um a lot of other things riding on, on the relationship they have with their animals. So, you know, they may, in, in the example of equine influenza, a lot of people had horses and like to compete and go out and, as I said, have that sort of social contact. Um, you know, and, and, and losing out on that, losing your sort of um, position in competition and other things as well was, was a key thing with that group. Um, you know, and obviously in emergencies, people have every every sort of different relationship with their animals from um you know, from, from being a, a, a very much loved member of the family through to, um, you know, um, show animals and things like that through to sort of, you know, competition animals and indeed livestock and, and you know, animals that, that people rely on for their, for their livelihoods. Yeah, definitely. Why do you think it's important that we factor in animals into our emergency planning? What is it that drives that for people? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the key things there is that, you know, in general, and I've, I've, I've been with emergency services people for, for a long time and I know how hard they try to get people to plan for emergencies for their own households. So, you know, already people are starting often from a quite low base in terms of having thought about their own households and, and family members. So once you start adding animals into that combination, that sort of mix, um, there's obviously a lot more things that, that need to be considered from the point of view of, firstly, you know, where you're going to take your animals, mm. um, you know, how you're going to capture, contain um, them so that you can transport them safely. Um, so, you know, there's a whole combination of, of the 
the, the mix of animals that, that people have in their homes um, and around their homes and uh, and also thinking about you know leaving early and, 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 and getting out before things get too bad in case you have to go you know more, make more than one trip for example. So you've you've been working on identifying some key points to try and help people manage this process a little bit better is that right? Yep. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I feel I feel a bit of a fake because there's good advice there already. So really, I'm I'm just really bringing out what what advice is there already, um, just to try and uh, I guess raise awareness of this as an issue. So, I mean, my research work has been looking at a number of different challenges, but um, yeah, the the main message at the minute is really with with the bushfire season sort of upon us, um, and and working in the Blue Mountains where fa- bushfire is the main threat. Um, it's been a case of just sort of, you know, giving some practical advice to people to that brings together, you know, I guess I guess combinations of advice. So it includes um, everything from the general planning through to specific planning about your animals and the checklists about things you need to sort of consider taking with you. Yeah, great. An important thing to to bring it bring it all together and um, share it. And and certainly you mentioned that there's some uh, key points that you're researching or challenges. What what sort of challenges are you finding? Well, I, you know, I guess I guess from the from the the people who who have animals in their households, you know, the challenges are are sort of you know where to go with your animals. So the emergency management system is is really quite different from one state to another. So it's really hard to give people specific advice, you know, that's that's uh, you know across the country. So there are quite a few issues around whether evacuation centres would take animals, and if they don't, how how we can get that sort of um, you know, surge capacity that sort of um, you know the, the number of people that are required to help manage and sort of you know book in animals if there's a case of actually taking them somewhere else so there are issues there around sort of just I guess ramping up the 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 people you know in, in a short period of time to help the animals so there's you know there's lots of work that goes into considering starting up evacuation centers for people but the animal part of it is not necessarily you know in in foremost in in the minds of either emergency services or some of the welfare agencies even though they all appreciate how important animals are to people and therefore how we have to to plan for them to to get people to actually leave their houses to start with that's a really good point isn't it people staying in homes to protect their animals rather than trying to protect their animals by leaving early um, yeah i mean yes i mean i was i was interested with some of our research sort of survey work with people that um you know i i, I guess i i we had people say that they would sooner die than leave their animals behind and and i and i you know wasn't sure quite how to interpret that as a researcher as a scientist uh, uh, you know without the actual event happening but uh, people really care very very strongly and and i've no doubt that you know if you can't get your animals out if you can't find your animal you could easily spend you know spend precious time trying to to find the cat or who whatever animal it is and you know put yourself in harm's way for sure yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned earlier that you're working in the Blue Mountains, uh, and that not a lot of not a lot of emergency response sort of organisations are really including animals yet. So government yeah. government agencies and things like that. But you're you're working with um, a, a group called Blue ARC, Animal Ready Community. Can you just tell us a bit about them and what they do? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so so we call it Blue Arc. Um, the uh, the play on words is quite deliberate. Yeah. So um, for us researchers, we think of ARC because it has other yeah. connotations. But it's uh, yeah. yeah. So so Blue Arc is is a group that was um, was set up uh, independent of the research that I've been doing, and they they were in their infancy. So this is a group of community members who had been very active after the 2013 bushfires in the Blue Mountains, and they b- brought together a 
uh, a community, a, a book for the community, um, which was really a lot, had a lot of photography in it about regeneration of the the natural habitat and the animals coming back and things like that. So it was a very, uh, you know, a lovely, a lovely, a very beautiful book. Mm. And um, this group uh, wanted to go and do something more after after that book was was finished. And so they had a number of projects, a couple of regeneration projects, you know, with bushlands. And they, but they wanted to do something with animals, and that's where we our paths crossed. And so. Uh, from from my point of view, having struggled a little bit with the emergency services and the different sort of setup with um, with people not really knowing what they needed to do, we wanted to sort of I wanted to try and um, maybe uh, find a way to, to leverage, I guess, a community led um, approach to this area. So, you know, one of the key messages when it comes to animals um, from the sort of official emergency management system is it, your animal, your responsibility. So it's very clear that, that the expectation is that you will deal with your animals and that you'll have to be fairly self-reliant. And so we wanted to try and find out, you know, what the, you know, what, what the barriers might be for people in, in, this, in the Blue Mountains area. Try to uh, answer some of those questions and provide useful advice that was helpful, uh, you know, and not too overwhelming, but also um, locally relevant to people. So that's what we've really started to do now. Yeah, getting that on the ground, sort of people dealing with the situation or having been in the situation previously must be very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the advantage of, of, of working in that area is, is clearly people are aware there's a risk. So, you you know, there's there's perhaps a bit more engagement in that general area to start with, but also, uh, you know, animal owners have been through disasters and so we can learn a lot from from what that what happened to them previously um you know and obviously try to interpret that in the context of how it might be different now so that we can then as i say provide some sort of useful advice and guidance you know with that wisdom on board so you you were mentioning earlier uh that there's you know we now share our homes with lots of different types of animals and in the community that i like the vegan community or the animal protection community uh, we not only have companion dogs and cats and other smaller animals but many people are also caring for rescued animals like sheep Mm. cows and pigs Mm -hmm. have you what's the um difference in the steps that you need to take or someone needs to take when thinking about protecting different types of animals I, I don't imagine they're all one size fits all no exactly and and yeah and, and that is a, it is a, a you know, serious issue here uh, in terms of trying to provide the best advice to people um, because it does really need to be tailored to you know the animals you have in your care uh, and the resources you have available in terms of maybe you know cars trans you know other, other forms of transportation uh, and friends locally who can help um, to, to evacuate quickly so um, you know, one thing that often happens, especially if people do have rescue animals, is they probably have more than they planned for. You know, so so um, you know, I, I say that with some experience. You know, I used to I, I inherited a goat when I moved to to a property um, a few years back, and she was lovely. Um, but I know at the time I was living on floodplain, and I didn't have a trailer to put put her in. Um, it used to worry me about what I would do for her. So you know, uh, yeah, to have multiple animals that need larger sort of transportation vehicles is a problem. Uh, yeah, horse floats. If you've got a two-horse float and you've got four horses, you, you, you're looking at having to make obviously two journeys. Um, and if you're having to do that in a hurry, um, firstly, you know you might not be able to get a, a second chance to go back and do that second pickup, or you might have to get out really quickly, which might mean choosing you know which horses you can get out most quickly, which is you know, a horrible thing to consider. But actually, you know, having to having to consider some of those unpleasant sort of you know, possible out, outcomes is something that I think will help to. I guess, I guess sort of prioritise, you know, what it is you need to do and, and, and how you might be able to solve some of those problems and get some additional help. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's, I suppose, the other thing in Australia is um, your, your, it sounds like your research is very much focused on bushfires, which is a in, incredibly common and unfortunate threat across all of Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do experience other, other types of emergency natural disasters like flooding um, quite recently and hurricanes in certain parts of the north and all over the world they have similar similar things like we think about the hurricanes in southern USA at the moment. Have you thought about or um, is there any work that you've done on the differences in preparing for different types of natural emergencies? Yeah, um, I mean, I've collected data from people who've been through floods up in Bundaberg and, and that sort of area, um, and also, you know, the fires in the, in the Blue Mountains. Um, I mean, the good thing about a lot of the advice is, is it, it doesn't matter what the emergency is, so it's, it's very much all hazards. So, you know, everything from, from storms that take out the electricity, you know, having to plan, plan for what you might do if you have, you know, reptiles or other animals that require, um, you know, some sort of power source, how yeah. you can deal with those sorts of situations. So, so a lot of the advice is very similar. Um, I think the most important thing um, probably is, is just the idea of not leaving without your animals um, because you don't know when you're going to get back, in, back to them. Um, so obviously, depending on where you live, you know, part of it is knowing what your risks are, but also... You know, with flooding, it can take a long time for water to subside or it can take a long time for, for access roads to be cleared. So, you know, your property might be okay, but you may not be able to get back because you can't actually drive, up, you know, along the road that you need to go along to, to get to your home. So, you know, leaving leaving animals behind is probably probably the worst thing to do. Much better that you, you leave with them, even if you don't know quite where you're going to go with them, than, than actually, you know, um, leave, leave them behind. Yeah, that's a really good point. I haven't even thought of that, that... There are the animals that are in our care often require things that they can't get themselves. If it's sheep in a paddock that need to be fed, if you can't get yeah. back to feed them, then mm-hmm. the end result, even if they are in a place that may not be directly impacted by the emergency or the disaster, they will still be impacted because you're unable to get back and, and look after them. Yeah, that's right, and and of course that that can help, and that can happen, you know, in, in a lot of different type of emergency situations where you know th- th- no one can be too sure quite where the flood water is going to go or quite which direction the bushfire is going to go. So emergency services, you know, appropriately want to kind of keep people out of harm's way. So roads get get closed, you know, and sometimes properties don't don't get impacted at all. But if you if you're still stuck away from home for you know four days or something, it, it obviously can, can be a massive uh, impact for animals. So to to just summarise, I think the the main points that you've brought out is that we really need to be thinking about how we're going to look after our animals and protect our animals if an emergency happens and when an emergency happens in some cases. We need to plan to take the animals with us. And are there other key things that need to... Yeah. Yes. I mean, one of the things I just thought of as you were talking is that I didn't mention, you know, um, in, in the Blue Mountains, one of the issues there is that a lot of people commute into the city, you know, to the to, into Sydney, um, and so away from home for long periods of time. So, you know, to have conversations with people who might be at home when you're at work, or um, you know, to have friends or, or, or neighbours that you can perhaps rely on, who you can say to them, look, if I'm not home, I really really would like you to, to grab the dog for me. If you if you can do it at all, please do that one thing for me. And have those conversations about, you know, how you might support that neighbour if you're, you know, if you're home at the weekends and they're out with their young children, for example, doing things. You know, if the same thing happened, what, what would they like you to do for them? Um, and the other thing is, don't forget the chickens. The one thing we're finding is that a lot of people, you know, the Blue Mountains is a is a very beautiful area, um, but 
because it's it's mountainous and, and very tree, you know, there's a lot of trees on it. It's it's not sort of conducive for large paddocks and and you know, lots of horses, yeah. unlike the floodplains in the Hawkesbury. But a lot of people have chooks, chooks, and uh, you know, kids, families, you know, love the chickens, and uh, they unfortunately seem to be the ones that are missing out the most when it comes to um, being considered. I think that is a great quote. Don't forget the chickens. That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, if if people that are listening want to learn more about this uh, this sort of thing and how they can plan, or even maybe I'm not sure if um, Blue Ark have information on how they've set up their community, is there anywhere that they can go to to find that sort of that sort of information? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess one of the best things might be to suggest that uh, that, that people look up um, Blue Ark Blue um, Animal Ready Community. Um, Blue Ark Animal Ready Community, sorry, on Facebook, um, because we have uh, a flyer there that we've developed recently, which is, is literally just alerting people to the good advice that's already available for different types of animals. So that's that's one thing you can do. Great, um, and I'll put that in the show notes. That'll be good. <laughs> and um, also, uh, yeah, there's there's some some of the work that we've been doing on the project featured on the Bushfire and Natural Hazards CRC website. So if you go to BNHCRC. You'll get that web page, and um, you can you can sort of look for us on. Uh, we're the only animal project, so you'll find us easily. Yeah, um, great. <laughs> um, but other, otherwise, you know, um, RSPCA, uh, other uh, agencies like um, the primary industry agencies um, have advice, uh, which is a good start. Uh, and and places like Red Cross have great sort of plans for general preparedness, uh, and most of them say include your pets, but don't usually go much further. Okay. So that's that's why those other groups are useful to to just sort of put that additional message in. Yeah, fantastic. And and speak to each other. If you're in a community that is um, susceptible to a natural disaster or emergency, speak to each other and and work out what you might do together. Yeah, that's right. Find find a buddy. I mean, people love you know people who love animals like other people who love animals, and most people are happy to talk about their animals. So use it as an opportunity to. To, to talk to the neighbours or whoever or, or you know the, if you're part of a group or there's a, a special interest group you know go and go and join in um, yeah. yeah make those connections yeah great fantastic and is there anything else that you'd, you'd want to um, say to people that are listening uh, no I don't think so just just you know please think about these things it's it's really hard with uh, all the pressures we're, we're under during the day in our normal lives to, to think start thinking about emergencies but um you know, it's not something that has to be big and overwhelming. You just need to sort of have have some discussions about it, and um, you know, do what you can to look after, you know, your furry and your non-furry um, animal members in the household. Yeah, fantastic. And thank you very much for your time for joining us today. You're very welcome. And that was Dr. Mel Taylor from Macquarie University talking about how we can work to protect the, our animals in emergency situations. And as the world continues to um, have more greenhouse gas emissions and uh, temperatures rising, emergencies and natural disasters are only going to become more frequent, more common, and also more intense. So there'll be um, the flooding will be higher and the fires will be burn, burn more. Um, so thinking about our animals if we especially if we live in those places where uh, we might be prone to fires or flooding and getting ready and knowing what we'll do and how we'll respond to those situations is really important for the health and well-being and possibly lives of the animals that we share our homes with so certainly something to um to consider 
And I think it also it also goes beyond that because while people in the city may not be um, as susceptible to bushfires, say, we are all susceptible to emergencies. So if we are hurt in some way and we have to go to hospital for a, quite a long time, um, heaven bid, hopefully that doesn't happen to any of us. Uh, but if that does happen, what's going to happen with, with your friends and your family, your, the animals in your family? What we wouldn't want happening is for us to be unprepared and those animals going somewhere um, like a pound or, or something like that. So try and find some people that you might know that would be happy to look after your animals in emergency. And if you are in a community or a town or a location that might be prone to flooding or fires or hurricanes, chat to, chat to the people around you and see what you can do as a community to protect the animals in your care. And I think it all is summed up with that really great quote, don't forget the chickens. Such an important part of the family nowadays is the beautiful chicken. Now, you're listening to uh, Freedom of Species on 855 AM, and you're about to listen to Grapevine Fires by Death Cab for Cutie. spread and the grapevine seemed left for dead in the northern sky like the end of day the end of day hello listen i had a great idea male chauvinist pig versus hairy like feminist you're still a feminist right i'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman the battle you've all been waiting to see the battle of the sexes you want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withcast Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm, for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? And thanks for tuning in to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. And you just listened to Grapevine Fires by Death Cab for Cutie. Now we're going to change tracks a little bit. I try to keep up to date with the latest science um, to do with veganism and animal advocacy, all that sort of jazz. And a recent paper caught my eye that was published on the 19th of September in the research journal um, Global Environmental Change. What was interesting about it, it, it sort of does some things that have been done previously, um, but what was interesting about it was that it showed that a plant-based food production scenario, um, so this is if we changed all of our food production in the world to be plant-based, no animals used in the production of food, and we didn't consume animals, um, we would have much lower levels of greenhouse gas emissions and use a lot less agricultural land. Now, in itself, that's not a, 
um, new or novel thing that's uh, been discovered by this paper because there are several papers previously, um, so several scientific research articles that have pointed out this, um, this difference that we would save a lot more land and would produce a lot less greenhouse gas emissions if we stopped um, eating the flesh of other animals and um, growing them and, and uh, producing them. Um, but the, the interesting thing about this study is the framework that it used. And I just want to explain that to you um, a little bit now. So the research was concerned with a pretty simple question. And that's um, in what ways can we reduce the amount of land we use and the greenhouse gas emissions we produce through our global food system? What is the best food system we can create in the future to reduce land use and reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Pretty simple. That's a, that's a straightforward question. Um, the thing about the global food system is that it has an incredibly large environmental impact, both through land use resource and resource use, so the use of um, water and, and other nutrients. And it, it's driven by three main um, aspects. One's human population size, so the more people there are, the larger amount of food we need to produce, and therefore we're, having, we're using more land, all of that sort of jazz. The second is the amount of food eaten and wasted. So the more food we waste, um, that's really that's really bad. It's we're using resources and land for nothing because we're just throwing it in the bin. And the third is the impact of food we eat um, on the environment. And this is this is an interesting one because different types of food have different levels of impact. They require different amounts of resources to grow and produce and get to a point where we can eat them. And it's often it's often measured by the impact per kilogram of food produced and includes all the types of things that go into getting a piece of food from the um, paddock or the farm to your plate. And that includes transport, distribution and disposal. So um, gases released when it's disposed and rotting. Now, the first aspect out of those three, human population size, is pretty much locked in to reach 9 to 11 billion people by 2050 um, because of population lag effects. There's not a lot we can do about that number at the moment, um, except for some pretty drastic things that we don't want to consider. Uh, we don't want to be <laughs> getting rid of people. Um, but it's, an, it's still an important conversation to have. We need to be talking about population size. But at this time right now, we'll, we'll be reaching 9 to 11 billion people. Maybe we, we need to be doing things right now so that that number doesn't go even higher. Um, but after 2050, um, that's, the, that's the possibility. We can maybe start to reduce those numbers. So while it's important that we discuss and work towards sustainable populations, there's not much we can do about it right now. So when we talk about food systems and reducing the environmental impact of food systems, the population size isn't one that is immediately um, possible to change. We can't do that immediately. So it's not going to have a big impact in the next uh, 30 years. So most of the work on reducing food system impacts has been on the other two aspects. Um, the concerned, so concerned with um, the amount of food we eat and the amount of food that's wasted, and that's the production side. So uh, 
and particularly how much food we can get out of a certain amount of land. So that's yield and um, certain amount uh, the types of practices we use on a farm will determine how much yield we can get. And most Western countries focus much more on getting better yield out of their farming practices rather than expanding their land, although expansion of land does definitely occur. I mean, Queensland's a great example of that. We knock down lots and lots of um, forested habitat for, for animal agriculture and other agricultural types in Queensland. And so does Brazil and so does, um, you know, lots and lots of different places. Indonesia, we still do get rid of... Um, we still we are still creating new areas of agricultural land, but there is an argument for um, for rather than doing that, increasing the yield on the land that we've already turned into agricultural land. And the other type is um, the types of food that we are eating. So if we can shift the demand on certain types of food that are particularly environmentally expensive, then um, we can reduce our impacts that way. So these are demand reductions. And there's a whole range of arguments within this spectrum. Like there's a, there's a spectrum of different arguments that go back and forward between environmentalists and, um, and agri agricultural um, scientists about what the best way to reduce our environmental impact is. That's from um, getting better yield out of our production, like I said, reducing the food waste that we're, we're producing and changing our diets. And in regard to changing our diets, animal agriculture has been highlighted as a, an incredibly inefficient use of resources. And by taking animal flesh off our plates, it's been shown that it would significantly reduce our environmental impacts. So a few years ago, based on these varying viewpoints, four scenarios for future livestock production um, were, uh, were outlined. And so a scenario is what it might look like in the future if... Um, or a, a, a future that we would like to create um, and the diet food system that we would like to have that reduces the amount of environmental impact in the future. The four scenarios were calibrated carnivory. So this is apparently, in quotes, thinking more about the, uh, the animal's production that we do. So rather than having um, large pastures where we graze animals, we would actually go into a much more higher intensity production type for animals, which is horrible. We all know, well, most of the people listening probably know the um, atrocities that occur on all farms, not to mention high intensity production sites. Um, the second scenario was livestock on leftovers. This is an idea where we don't actually um, grow animals necessarily and specifically to eat um, from crops that we're growing. So at the moment, we grow a lot of crops, 70% um, around about of our agricultural, our cropping land, 75% actually of our cropping land, um, sorry, 75% of our agricultural land goes to feeding animals or goes to producing animals. That includes pasture and crops that we feed animals. So there's this huge amount of land that we're using to um, feed other animals. But this livestock on leftovers um, scenario doesn't do that. It would say all the cropland that we have, all of that food should go to people. And we can grow animals on marginal lands that aren't very good and aren't suited for growing crops. So they're sort of 
out there on the outskirts and they're, they're growing off of um, pretty crappy land, basically, agriculturally crappy land. The third scenario is architectured flesh, and that is an artificial meat scenario. So basically, we replace the meat, the animal flesh that we'd eat, usually eat from growing living individuals to um, actually growing the meat in labs, clean meat, artificial meat. And the final one is fruits of the earth scenario. And this is where we go to a wholly plant-based scenario. And the, the study wanted to, to quantify the agricultural land requirements and greenhouse gas emissions arising from these different scenarios in 2050. So if we had each of those four scenarios in 2050, what, what would it look like? What would a world that was just based on plant-based agriculture in 2050, how much land would it use? How much greenhouse gas emissions would it create? And same with the calibrated carnivory. If we went to a high intensity production style and we still included animals in our diets, then how much agri agricultural land and greenhouse gas emissions would there be in 2050? And they did this so they could have stronger arguments for each of these different debates that's going on within the research community and um, agricultural community. And there are also a, a couple of other different types of scenarios. So for the calibrated carnivory or the intensive production, animal intensive production scenario, they had a couple of different types of intensive production. So one that was dairy and beef, one that was dairy and chickens, and one that was um, dairy, oh, uh, dairy and fish. So different, different types of animals that they're using and abusing there. Um, but they also tested each scenario on the projected diets that we are expected to be eating in 2050. So that's basically what, how much um, animal flesh, how much wheat, how much legumes, how much fruit, how much veggie, veggies are we eating right now? And if we project that out to 2050, what's the diet um, composition? What are we gonna be eating in 2050? And then an alternative healthy diet scenario. So the healthy diet scenario is within each of these different um, scenarios, the four scenarios that we've got, we will get um, a certain amount of our calories from different types of food. And usually these healthy diet scenarios reduce the amount of animal flesh that people consume because consuming animal flesh um, in large quantities at least, is not healthy for us. So that's really a change in, um, in the composition of our diet. So they've got these four, four areas of um, different types of scenarios we could reach and two types of diets that we, or diet compositions that they've tested. And basically what they did for each of these scenarios is figure out how much food is consumed per person for each scenario based on the diets. So the, so for instance, the carnivore diets includes a certain amount of animal flesh, while the fruits of the earth um, only eat plant-based foods. Then they calculate how much land the scenario requ requires and how much greenhouse gas emissions are produced. So what they found was that the plant-based and artificial meat scenarios use significantly less land than any of the alternative scenarios that also include animals. And surprisingly, based on the analysis, the artificial meat scenario uses the least amount of land, which was surprising to me. I, I'd, I'd seen some research um, before, but I hadn't seen anything as clear as um, showing that the artificial meat scenario is actually lower than a plant-based diet scenario. 
And this was the same result for the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the two scenarios that excluded live animals from the food systems emitted much less greenhouse gas. Um, another interesting finding was that for all scenarios that included live animals, the healthy diet had a lower land use and emissions. And that makes sense. Like I was saying, you're going to have less meat in a healthy, healthy diet. Um, overall, a world with a plant-based food production system would lead to a 64% reduction in land use, which is huge. I mean, 64% of all of the um, land use that we're having to produce our food is a large amount compared to um, business as usual at the moment and a 73% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions for 2050. Again, a very large figure that sort of makes it very um, very appealing to go to a plant-based um, future. But what was worrying about the paper that I found was that I think most people will take um, from the study, they won't necessarily look at the, the good results for the plant-based options, but they'll look at the results that intensification of animal use leads to a decrease in land use and greenhouse gas emissions as well. They're certainly not at the 64 and 73% reductions. So for um, land use in intensified animal scenarios, it's a 31% reduction. And for greenhouse gases, it's a 22% reduction. So that's, that's more, so a plant-based diet doubles the land use reduction and triples the um, greenhouse gas production. But the issue is that um, most people probably see the plant-based and artificial meat diets as, um, as impossible and, or not, not um, ideal. And the authors actually point this out as well. They say that while it's clear that a plant-based diet and an or an animal, an artificial meats future, is much better for our envir environment. Um, it just isn't politically or culturally, or um, or people just aren't going to do it. Um, so for me, the take-home message from this paper was that having a plant-based future is absolutely the thing that we need to be going for if um, if we want to protect our environment. Uh, but we need to. Um, we need to do. We need to work more than ever to make a plant-based future a viable and desirable future. So we need to help people see that a plant-based future is actually something that we want to work towards and is good for us all. Um, it's good for the animals. It's good for the environment, and it's good for ourselves. And so that was an interesting paper that I thought I'd share with you, and I'll, um, I'll link it in the show notes on the 3CR and Freedom of Species website. Um, yeah, so again, another, another really good paper showing that a plant-based diet is much better for our environment. Um, what we need to do now is work on the behavioural and um, aspects of getting to that future. Uh, before that, Let's have a listen to a song by Alter Bridge called Bleed It Dry.
And that was Alterbridge, Bleed It Dry. Um, thanks for listening to the show, guys. This is Freedom Species on 3CR 855 AM. I just wanted to finish up with a community announcement. The Animal Activist Forum, if you're in Melbourne, um, the Animal Activist Forum, which is a great opportunity to network with other activists and explore different avenues to activism, is happening on the 14th and 15th of October, only two weekends away. So it's going to be happening at the Melbourne Town Hall and you can find out more details and um, register and buy tickets at activistsforum.com. So definitely check that out. Um, It's a great event. I've been a few times. Uh, The Freedom of Species contact details, if you want to give us any feedback or um, suggest a show, there's info at freedomofspecies.org and there's also the Facebook page and Twitter And up next, keep listening for Encyclodelia. All the best, guys. Bye. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.